Take your Bible and turn to Romans. Back to Romans 1. We have thoroughly understood what he was trying to say or what he was saying, rather in his greeting, verse 16 and 17. We're going to read those two verses again. But it was the theme, it's the axle, the axis, it's where everything turns, it's the center point of the entire letter. We said it the last time, if we can't understand, if we don't embrace verse 16, verse 17, then our view of the entire book of Romans will be off. We won't be able to really take all that is there for us to enjoy. And now that we have closed out in the theme, we'll touch on the latter part of verse 17 just a little bit tonight. But we're getting ready to dive in. And now you're going to notice a big shift in the tone of Paul's voice. We've had pleasantries. We've had a greeting. We've talked about the faith of the church in Rome. It's all been nice and it's been pleasant thus far. He's given us a great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now it all shifts. Paul gets to the nitty-gritty, the rubber meets the road in the next verse. Let's back up. Let's not read the entire chapter just for the sake of time tonight. But let's go back up to verse number 16. Read verse 16 and 17, and then our text tonight will be verse 18. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also the Greek, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You see how everything all of a sudden begins to change in what he's saying and what he's doing. He's laid out the beauty of the gospel, the power of the gospel. It's God's gospel. It belongs to him. No man can alter the truth of what God's gospel is. It's the hope of salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation. And then he drops it in four low and goes into the mud. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. It'd be if you were receiving this letter friend to friend and a friend had greeted you and talked about your faith and how encouraging it is to hear about how much you believe and how well you live your life and and talked about the goodness of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then the next line in the letter is, for the wrath of God is revealed. The tone's changed. And so now we begin to build a structure... I submit to you that as this is canonized, as it's part of the New Testament, if you remove Romans chapter 1, you really take everything and kind of tilt it one way or another. This is the balancing portion of Scripture where there is tension in other places that pulls verse to verse, thought to thought. This is the stable ground. This is the engine, if you will, of our faith. This is the the center point. Without this, our faith seems wobbly. It may even seem unfinished. But what Paul gives us here, what God in His divine wisdom put into Scripture for us, and it goes back to why all of the Bible is so vitally important cover to cover, 
you can't take out sections we feel uncomfortable with. That's why we have to take the text as it is and embrace all of it. It's why it's so important. Because without Romans 1, Winston Parish is in a mess. I need the guidance of Romans 1. It's the engine of our faith. It's a good place for us to start each time. Every new believer, as they are in the faith and as they grow, it's a great place for them to begin to understand just exactly who they were before Christ and then endeavor to be different in their walk of faith. And we're going to see a real shift here. This entire book is getting ready to shift, and it's going to continue this way until really the third chapter. From chapter 1, verse 18, what we just read, all the way to chapter 3, verse number 20, we're going to be dealing with the need of God's righteousness. And it's pointed out or revealed in the unrighteousness of man. Why God's righteousness is needed for our lives. Well, the reason God's righteousness is so needed is because we are inherently unrighteous people. That's who we are. And Paul lays this out and makes it very, very clear. Now, having described the greatness of the gospel, he continues to build on that through this entire book. He'll continue to unfold and build. But Paul enters on this description of human sin and a description of God's wrath. Now, Paul speaks of the condition of the Gentile world in this first part. We'll see the Gentile world, we'll see the Jewish world, and then we'll see sort of a a pagan mankind, the cosmos. He subdivides this, but we're going to start where Paul started, and that's with the Gentile world apart from the gospel and apart from saving grace and what that looks like. And what this does is brings us to a more... Uh, understanding a heavier reality of what God did in our lives in our salvation. Salvation is not a cheap moment. It's not a cheap element. It's not some sort of swipe your card transaction. Salvation is a most holy transaction. It is a most divine thing. It's the greatest miracle that a dead man could become alive through the power of Christ, that the righteousness of a holy God could be imparted to mere mortal, unrighteous people. It's the greatest miracle to ever happen. Christ was God in flesh, all God and all man. The fact that He was able to resurrect Himself it should not be any surprise. He called Himself the Son of God. But the fact that you and me can partake in what the Bible calls the divine nature of God, that in itself is the greatest miracle, that you could know who God is and that God could know who you are. Your salvation is not some sort of sign the card, become one of the bunch, cry a tear, have a moment, and that's it. It's a beautiful, earth-shattering resurrection from death unto life, from darkness to light. And Paul lays this out for us to understand in a way that if we'll embrace this, and then really if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll humble ourselves to ask God to reveal what we really are, what we really were prior to Christ, it will do nothing but push us towards Christ with thankful hearts. So what we have here in Romans 1 is this demonstration. And it's going to talk about both Jew and Gentile, but this section tonight is really focusing on the Gentile. Later it gets into the religious actions of the Jew. Now, some may shrug and even 
sort of disdain the idea of talking about sin and talking about wrath and talking about judgment and talking about God and His greatness as it pertains to the sinful man. And some may even say, oh great, here we go. We're, we've been doing this for months and we're only in chapter 1, verse number 18 and I just heard that there's going to be condemnation all the way to chapter 3. Well, let me encourage you with this. First, let me remind you of the severity of sin. I know we live in a culture, and I know that even in some churches, sin is regarded with a different stance, different adaptations of what sin is. I know we run rampant with that in culture. But sin is a very serious thing. Sin is a disease that has a 100% infection rate with a 100% mortality rate. If it's left untreated, it will have an eternal impact of horrendous, unspeakable implications. We're talking about someone's soul and where they'll spend eternity. Whether that's in heaven with God and the believers or in hell with the Antichrist, with Satan and all of his minions. So ignoring or undermining the severity of this disease is dangerous. And it leads to a lot of people embracing cures, if you will, that are on the surface. It's an Advil for your broken foot. Yeah, it may take away some of the swelling. It may take away some of the pain. But your foot is still broken. The bone is still fractured and it must be healed. There are often times that in life you can have an emotional experience. You can have a good day. You can have put whatever human experience into that category you wish. And it may feel like a temporary stay or even a permanent fix on what's wrong internally. But what our culture has bred is a culture of quick fix quick religion with no strings attached. And with no strings attached, there is no cure attached for the disease. It's like putting Neosporin in a gunshot wound. It may make sense. It may feel good. I don't know how. But at the end of the day, what's happening on the inside is still going to kill you if it's not fixed internally. Sin is a most serious, serious issue. If researchers and doctors and scientists want to eliminate or if they want to cure, if they want to put a virus at bay, what do they do? They study it. There are scientists and doctors at the CDC that spend their entire career studying one disease. They spend 25 or 30 years understanding just how one disease works. And we as Christians should understand this disease of sin inside and out and do our best to stay away from it. From these verses as we study, I do believe that if we'll ask the Lord to help us, and let me say this, if we'll ask the Lord to help all of us understand this, and even if you would pray for your pastor that as he studies, that God will reveal this to me. That God would show me what to preach and what to say and how to preach it and how to say it. That's a prayer that should be prayed from all of us. God, we need to be fed from Your Word. 
We want to use your word and rightly divide it. We want to preach the full counsel of God. But it has to be approached with humility. If we come to this text, Romans 1 is, as I say, a loaded potato. It's got all the ingredients in it. And if you come to this loaded potato in any place of pride, in any sort of high loftiness in your spirituality, you're not going to get anything from this. Those that enter the kingdom of God enter the kingdom of God at the lowest place in all humility. And as you embrace who God is and His righteousness and His goodness, it plunges the heart of a man into the dirt, into a place of great submission and humility. And all that does is makes our eyes look up even further, that our neck would have to extend even further to look up. This is the greatness of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. It's in contrast to who we are, sinful men. And so for us to understand sin and to embrace the true condition of our hearts, the true nature of our sin and the magnitude of the justice of the wrath of God, then I do believe that these verses will cause us to cherish the gospel message of Jesus Christ even more than we ever have before. That we would cherish our salvation more than ever before. So let's dive into this with all humility and ask God to encourage us. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come into Your presence and we ask You now, Lord, as we dive into this text even deeper, Lord, that You would stir our hearts with Your Word. God, that we would embrace the truth of Your Word with all humility God, that we would submit ourselves to You as Lord in the rightful spot in area, every, every, every area of our heart. Lord, we need You. God, we're desperate for You. We're thirsty for You. We're hungering tonight for fresh hot bread from Your oven. Now, Father, feed us through Thy Word. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. The wrath of God. Let's read verse number 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Notice he positioned the wrath. The wrath is not something that is coming from mankind. It's not something that's coming from a pulpit or a preacher. It's not something that's coming from human emotion. Rather, this wrath that Paul is speaking of is coming from God Himself in heaven. To, to indicate that it's coming down from heaven gives you an idea of the way it's coming. Anything that comes down from heaven comes with uh, fury and with fire and with speed. It's not a slow, uh, mag magical drift. It comes quickly. The wrath of God is a deep and a broad subject, but it should be seen as something that is a constant. It's something that is immovable. It's part of who God is. It's His nature. The wrath of God. Really, a lot of people when they hear, and you can hear this in conversation, especially with people in their 20s, in their 30s, we choose not to embrace this side of the Trinity. We choose to focus on verses and ideas and themes that will isolate in one portion of Scripture, and then we will build in our mind and in our heart a picture of God based on one set of verses or one instance in the New Testament. 
and will omit the rest of the big picture with who God is. And for us to embrace who God is as described in Scripture, then we must embrace the wrath and the justice of this God. That's part of he, who He is. Without His wrath, He is not God. Without justice, He is not God. Thank God, He's also a merciful God and a gracious God and a God that yet again knows who you are. Praise the Lord. But the way I embrace God, the way I see God, the way I put God in my brain should not be just focused on one end of the picture, one aspect of His nature. Rather, if I allow myself a broad view of who God is and I make room in my heart to really embrace the wrath and the vengeance of God, that that is part of his nature, then look what happens. It evens out the equation of how I live my life. If I understand God to be a God of wrath and a God of anger and a God of vengeance, holy and righteous in his indignation, then it balances out the fact that I have access to that God through grace and mercy. And because I have grace and mercy applied through the justification paid for in Christ, then it makes me say, my goodness, look at what could have been. Now let me change the way I live. When we say the Lord's day, Sunday, and we talk about that being the day that we set aside everything else to be faithful to be in His house, to give Him praise, glory, and honor, to be fed from His Word corporately. That is part of living a life of someone who understands the wrath, the fury, the justice, and the validity of all of those attributes in their God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Your God is a God of great love and a God of great compassion. But your God is a God of great fury, of great fire, and of great hatred. You say, well, that's not a very nice thing to say about Him. If we'll understand Scripture and embrace it for what it says, then we'll understand who God is better. There's a real lacking in our churches as it pertains to Bible teaching and Bible preaching as biblically defined attributes of God. It so troubles me when I hear a pastor or I see a movement and they present God to lost people as if God is some sort of warm, fuzzy option. It so sets those people up for failure. It robs God of His glory. And I wish those people would read Galatians 1 and how God Himself makes a charge against people who mishandle Scripture and who change the Gospel. The Gospel is trademarked in heaven by God Himself. It doesn't matter what a man wants to twist and turn. It's how God set this thing up and it's rooted in His Word. We must embrace that our God is a God of wrath. It's God's response to sin. It's God's expectation of sinners it's God's dealings with evil and unrighteous. I, I, I'm, I'm thankful that God is a God of wrath as it pertains to unrighteousness. I am glad that God is not going to let the devil get away with what he has done. One day the devil will pay for what he did. 
for what he's done, for what he is doing. One day the Antichrist will pay for what he did and for what he will do. I'm thankful that God is a God of wrath and justice. But I'm also thankful that I do not have to be in the category who receives the wrath and the justice. But because I know that's his potential, and because I know that's who he is, and because I know how reverent and how holy he is, then it makes me want to live differently for him. In other words, I'm grateful tonight for my seat at the table. I don't deserve to be inside, much less have a seat at the table. And as I said two weeks ago, playing dumb or playing ignorant as it pertains to the attributes of God, as it pertains to Holy Scripture, as it pertains to light received that you've heard, you you can't unhear the truth. It's like toothpaste. Once it's out, it's out. You may try to stuff it back in, but you're going to get it all over you. And the truth is, a lot of people have heard a lot of truth, but they're playing dumb to themselves. Well, I don't really understand. Uh, Here's one that I love. Here's one that I love. Well, you know, the King James, it's it's difficult to understand. It's, It's difficult to embrace. No, it's ignorance and it's blissful. You're enjoying it. You know in your heart of hearts that what you're doing is dead wrong. God's already shown you. But the problem is you can pretend to yourself and you may pretend with other people, but when you get to heaven, there'll be no pretending. God knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motivations and your intentions. Every word you've ever spoken, every thought you've ever had, it's recorded. He knows. And you'll have to be accountable for the light that you've received. There is no ignorance when it comes to God's Word or the workings, the office work of the Holy Spirit that's been revealed to you. There's no excuse. Understanding the wrath of God is very important in this aspect. When you think of someone getting angry, when you think of someone coming to wrath, granted, I've seen you come to wrath before. My Lord, you want to talk about being terrified? Let that bust loose one time. It's terrifying. But God's wrath is not like that. It's not the anger of a parent when the child does something that they've been told not to do. The wrath of God is not a knee-jerk emotional reaction of someone who's trying to figure out how to respond to something. God is so great and so broad in who He is that at the same time that all the love and all the grace and all the mercy is constantly flowing and beaming with great fury, I might add, towards men, at the same time all that love and all that grace and all that mercy is being bestowed willingly and openly as a gift to all who would believe, At that same time, this same God on this side is the same God, but still has quantifiable, unmovable, constant wrath, anger, and hatred towards sin. At the same time that this God can love sinners, He can hate sinners because of the sin. 
You say, well, how can that be? This is who God is according to Scripture. This is the wrath of God the Apostle Paul is talking about. And it is a constant, settled picture of who He is. It's a response of righteousness against sin. Our God hates sin. Our God hates unrighteousness. Our God hates wickedness. And in Revelation, it even says that people who are lukewarm in their faith, He spews them out of His mouth. It disgusts Him. That is the nature of God. In Scripture, if you'll study it thoroughly, you'll find that in Christ's teachings, you'll find more about His wrath and about His anger and about hell than you will about heaven. It's unmistakable. In Paul's presentation of the gospel, the bad news of human sin and God's wrath comes even before the good news of salvation. It's because this is how we are born. This is our nature. There's some verses I want to read to you give us a better understanding of this. It's not isolated to just Pauline epistles. This isn't just one man's idea. And understand that if this was only found in Pauline epistles, it still was divinely canonized into Scripture for us to embrace. Psalm 2, 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Psalm 2, 5. Psalm 2, 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Psalm 45, 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. This is Jeremiah pleading for victory against all of the nations that are coming against Israel. And in this, he's with confidence and authority saying, God, I want you to do something harmful to them, that the fury and the wrath of God would come. And look what he says, and they shall drink it and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. This is the nature of our God. John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son have everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And finally, Colossians 3, 5, and 6, 
Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil, conspicuous, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. The wrath of God. It's the nature, it's the character, it's the personality, and it's the pleasure of our God. You say, well, if God becomes angry, is that not a sin? No, it's righteous indignation. There is nothing about God that can be bad, that can be out of sort, that can be evil. And if He sees something or if He endures something amongst His people that causes Him to be angry, it's righteous indignation. It's righteous anger. It's our futility up against His grandeur. It makes us understand the life verse of our pastor emeritus even better, John 3.30, that I would decrease, that He would increase. We cannot preach God, nor can we teach God small. We can't limit His attributes and who He is, His character to human emotion and human understanding. God is a vast God of great attributes and great power and great capacity to hate sin. He's a holy God. Now let's move on in this verse where the wrath of God is revealed. Let's talk about this revealing. Now, as we said a moment ago, it's a constant thing. This is not something that comes and goes with the seasons. It's an immovable, constant, revealed wrath. The word essentially means to uncover, to make visible, to make known. And there's two ways I'm going to give you if you're making notes, and I hope you are. There's two ways in which God will reveal His wrath that we can see. Number one is indirectly through the natural consequence of violating His moral law. Indirectly through the natural consequences of violating His moral law. Simply put, anything that is displeasing or unlike God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every person in this room. And number two, he reveals his wrath directly through his personal intervention. Indirectly through the natural consequence of violating his law, Number two is directly through His personal intervention. Now, the Old Testament is the greatest place to see His direct intervention. The sentence passed on to Adam and Eve when they sinned. The worldwide flood, the fire and the brimstone that leveled Sodom and Gomorrah, the captivity of the Israelites by the Babylonians delivered directly into their hands by God. That is direct intervention, where God divinely infiltrated the situation to bring judgment, to bring wrath, to show displeasure. Many times He did it very visibly and very obviously. I think where I want to leave you tonight is the most graphic 
revelation of God's holy wrath and hatred against sin. It's when He poured it out, all of His divine judgment, on His Son Jesus on the cross. That was, as a believer, your personal, divine, individual intervention as it pertains to God's wrath on your life. And it happened in Jerusalem on Golgotha when Jesus received on the cross the wrath of God. We can't ever get away from the fact that the language there proves in text that Jesus became accursed. That's so strong. It means to literally be damned. Jesus didn't just give up the ghost. He became the curse. He became sin. And in that curse, there was separation from God the Father. That was the wrath of God as it pertains to your life. That was God's direct intervention on your behalf. That was your Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone moment. That was your judgment in the garden passed down face to face. That was your wrath. But it was given to Jesus and not those that believe. That's how great and how mighty and how wonderful and how beautiful the gospel message of Jesus Christ really is. That Jesus loved you enough that whatever God in Him talked about in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll not know until we get to heaven. I can't wait to have the full context of that conversation and know exactly what Jesus said and what God the Father said back, what that divine conversation was. I pray when I get to heaven, I get to have a glimpse into that moment. But whatever Jesus came to in His divine nature, in His love for you, not only as God, but as all man. He was a man in the garden. Knowing what was coming, the wrath of God, the separation of the Trinity, a temporary stay on the power that He would die and that He would take your wrath. That's the greatest news that you could ever embrace. That you never have to know what it is to have the wrath of God poured out on you as a believer. And then as we begin to understand and embrace the wrath of God in a clear picture, in a more meaningful way, that it would crush our hearts to think of someone going into an eternity without God. That we start to really mean what it means to go to hell. That it would break us. That we wouldn't want anyone to have to experience that that they would see Christ for who He is, and that they would embrace the free gift given to all men through the power of the Holy Ghost. And in five different capacities, His wrath is carried out. And the greatest is the eternal wrath, which is in hell. The second is prophetic wrath, which is the final day of judgment to come when the Lord returns. Talk about it Sunday. When Christ comes with judgment and fire, 
The third is a cataclysmic wrath, like the flood, like the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. The fourth is consequential wrath. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. You'll reap what you sow. And for people who understand that God's Word is an errant, infallible, holy, and inspired, and that every word is true, as we see who we are, we'll start reaping and sowing differently. This isn't for us to embrace, to be scared of God with an unrighteous fear. This is an opportunity to embrace God in His righteousness and fear Him. You see, when you have a, a father that, 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 that's, that's that, that good, that kind, that loving, you don't want to disappoint Him. You don't want to let Him down. You don't want one moment of one day cost you anything that would mean not being in full fellowship with Him. He could have allowed me to never see Him for who He was. And let me live on in blindness and false religion all my days. And He'd still been God. But in love and in grace and in mercy, He let me see Him for who He was. The fact that Jesus died on my cross became my sin, became my curse, and took all my wrath. Now I want to live differently for Him. This all ends in this verse. We won't get to all of this tonight, but I do want to give you this last part. In this verse, verse 18, go back to that real quick, and I'll close, I promise. I've got six more pages, but I won't do them tonight, I promise. Go to the end of verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We'll come back and touch on that, the ungodliness and the unrighteousness. But this last part, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, that hold the truth That phrase together means to literally suppress, to hold under. And what we'll begin to do and what we're going to begin to realize in our life as Christians, as believers, as pastors, as lovers of the Word of God, is we'll begin to see the folly of men who wake up in the morning and see the sunrise. And something inside of them whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Something had to make that sun shine. Something had to make that sun hot. Something had to give those birds life and a song. Something greater than myself. This the simple human conscience that all men are born with. Unsaved three-year-olds know they're in trouble when they get caught in the cookie jar. How did that get in them? It's a simple consciousness of humanity. It's a fallen nature. It's a broken nature. But what the Bible is saying is men who want to reject the truth of God's Word, to oppose the truth of God's Word, 
or the uh, irrefutable fact that creation itself proves that God is God, when they do that, it's like a beach ball. When they try to oppose the truth. Have you ever gone to a pool or gone to the beach or the lake and you take a beach ball and you fill it up and you get it really big and you put it underneath the water? You might even lay on it and it goes under. But what winds up happening? Well, for me, it flips me over. I go head first, feet up. And what does the ball do? It does not stay submerged. It's so full of air. It's so full of truth. It comes back to the surface. It keeps popping up. And if you want to keep it held under, you're going to have to work your entire life. All of your energy, all of your time is going to have to be spent pushing, holding the truth underneath. But every single time, somehow, some way, that ball's going to come back up. And I don't know, it's just a strange kick to come back to this tonight. If you're here in the building and you're lost and undone without Christ and you're under conviction and you know you need to be saved and you're playing with time and you're playing with God's call on your life to respond to the gospel, don't leave this building till you get it settled. Come tonight in faith believing and repent of your sins and ask Christ to forgive you. And guess what? You won't have to play the beach ball game in life anymore. You can embrace the truth of His Word, of who He is. And stop trying to hold it under. And embrace that what Christ did on the cross was enough for you, enough for me, and enough for all who believe to see heaven and never see hell. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Or thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that there would be anyone here under the sound of my voice tonight that's lost and undone without Jesus. God, maybe they're here tonight and they're under conviction. They know they need to be saved. They know that there's a gap, a hole that's deep in the recesses of their heart. They're broken and undone. They've tried so many different things to fix the problem. And tonight as they sit there and they're palms are sweaty, their heart rate is high their guilt and their shame feels like it's exposed to the whole world God I pray in Jesus name they would surrender to who Christ is Lord that they would never ever have to know what it is to be separated from God the wrath of God would never be poured out upon them in eternity Lord that they could spend eternity in heaven with you in a place of perfectness and righteousness and goodness where there's no more sin no more shame, no more guilt that while they're on this earth, they can live a life that would please you and honor you, glorify you in all that they say and all that they do. Lord, you know the hearts. Lord, it's our job to plant the seed. Lord, now you bring forth the harvest. You do the work. Holy Ghost, you open the eyes. You take the blind minds and remove the scales. Allow Calvary to be every evident in their eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good night. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your week. Pastor Ralph, can you help me over here for a moment? If you need prayer help tonight, don't leave before you come. Our altars are still open. Let's leave quietly tonight, reverently tonight. Miss Angie, if you'll...